Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. I was looking forward to uh, telling you about Dave and Rachel's baby, but Elizabeth stole my thunder. That's really awesome news, though. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeff King, and I am the uh, director of worship and music here at Liberty Fairmount. Um, I'm subbing in for our pastor, Scott Crosby, while he's away on vacation. Um, So Scott left me with a small task of uh, speaking about a portion of scripture that one of the commentators I was reading uh, this week described as being undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances found in the whole Bible. So that that was literally the first thing I read when I sat down to study. I was like, okay, so let's do this. So I hope you're excited. I hope you've brought the spiritual equivalent of whatever hiking gear you need, your carabiners, your ropes, all that stuff. We, we will need those in our hearts today as we go to God's word. Um, if you drew a line in scripture, um, starting with Genesis and moving towards Revelation, that kind of tracked the, the intensity of the Bible's moral teaching, you'd find that it starts very high with creation and then plummets really precipitously with the fall. And then it kind of stays pretty low through the cycles of the judges, through the the history of Israel. There'd be a few little spikes of goodness for the few kings that kind of obeyed the Lord briefly. Um, It might plateau back up again a little bit with the Psalms, with all their exuberant praise of the Lord. But then with the birth of Jesus and uh, the beginning of his ministry, it would absolutely fly off the charts. Um, it It would go higher to like the nosebleed heights of scripture. And what we're looking at here, I would say, is stage five of the ascent of of Mount Kilimanjaro. We're going to try to talk about this in a way that's going to make sense to us, that's going to hopefully have some traction in our lives, but it really is this otherworldly, nose-bleeding height. So if you feel a little vertigo, if your feet slip, if those things happen, that's to be expected. This is is lofty at first approach. Um, So let me begin by reminding us of our context, and then I'll uh, give us a roadmap for what I'd like to talk about specifically this morning. Um, We spent the last several weeks looking at the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, which began his famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, In it, we read one of the longest of Jesus' speeches that most robustly communicates the heart of the Christian message. You'll hear the Sermon on the Mount referenced even by people who don't believe in Christianity um, as kind of the archetype that represents what Christianity is all about. That is, there's other places in Scripture that summarize what the gospel is. I can think about like places in Isaiah where Isaiah writes that, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's it. Um, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's the gospel. 
But those aren't Jesus' direct words. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus himself saying, this is what life in my kingdom is like. This is what it means to know me and my Father. So what is the Sermon on the Mount itself? The Sermon on the Mount is mostly made up of teachings uh, about specific subjects. If you keep reading through the end of chapter 7, you'll hear Jesus talk about divorce and adultery, about murder, um, about judgment, about betrayal, all of these very heavy issues. Um, And the point of Jesus is bringing those things up is to show the inability of human effort to ever fulfill the law of God. That is, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, pardon me, the Sermon on the Mount begins with uh, several verses before all of those specific moral teachings, several verses that we call the Beatitudes. And in them, Jesus gives us this grand and incomprehensible vision of what he calls the kingdom of God. Um, The kingdom of God is a really, really big subject in scripture. I'm not going to try to explain it or or even delve into it because you could have a whole other sermon series about what's the kingdom of God and what's it like. So when I use that phrase or when we hear God or Jesus reference that phrase here in the text, um, I want you to think of it as kind of a, a blanket statement, a summary category for all of God's redemptive purposes. That is the way that Jesus longs for the world to be, the way that Jesus longs for creation to be and for your hearts to be, for my heart to be. All of those things are bound up in a blanket that um, Jesus calls the kingdom of God. So, moving on. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us about this kingdom. What is Jesus' kingdom like? Well, the verse that we're looking at in particular teaches us that there's a different way to go through life. There's a different way to live besides cutting to the front of the line to get ahead of people. There's a different way way to live than um, altering the truth to get ahead of other people at their expense. There's a different way to go through life than just the ways of nature. And that that way that Jesus is going to tell us about here through the purity of heart has to do with a way of living to honor God and honoring what God loves. So, back to the text specifically, where are we glimpsing Jesus in this particular moment, at this particular point in the Gospel of Matthew? Um, The scripture tells us that word about Jesus was really quickly spreading through Judea and Samaria. He was kind of hot off the press, so to speak. He was uh, performing miracles. He was giving introductory remarks about what his kingdom was really like. And uh, people were hearing about it. The Jews of the day were hearing, who is this guy called Jesus? And they were flocking to Jesus because they wanted to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, uh, what Jesus was actually had to say about himself. So we read that Jesus went up on a mountainside um, to be heard that his disciples gathered around him, but most of the hearers who were there listening to him were practicing Jews of the day. Um, So these were Jews who were living under the oppression of Roman law. Um, They were people that were looking for rescue from political oppression. Um, They were hoping that Jesus would be a revolutionary who would overthrow the powers that be at the time. They had political expectations of Jesus. These were also people who were very religious. They understood that life with God was not so much about the inner dynamics of the heart, but more so about the transformation, or rather, not the transformation, but the performance of a long list of religious duties. For Jews in, the, in this day and age, religious life was about ceremonies. It was about performance. It was about external life. That's what it meant to be a Jew. That's what it meant to please God. That's what it meant to be a religious person. And the Sermon on the Mount, why did I bring that up? Because the Sermon on the Mount stands in such stark contrast to that way of thinking, because Jesus is talking about God's profound concern for the transformation of our whole person, that is not just our behaviors, but the deepest place inside of us. Scripture uses the word heart to refer to the place inside of us out of which our desires, our emotions, our wills, our hopes, our longings, those are the things that come out of our heart. 
And that's the place that God is concerned most with. That's the place he wants us to yield to him. Um, and that's what Jesus is, uh, that's what his teaching is digging at. Um, <clears throat> you could say this another way. The Jews were familiar with the letter of the law, but they knew nothing of the spirit of the law. What, so think of this metaphor. Um, you could think of the Jews as being a first-year guitar student going to learn from Jesus, the uh, expert guitar player, how to play Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, right? You guys know the tune? People are familiar with Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, classic rock song. So the first-year student with his rusty Fender Stratocaster goes to his teacher and he says, I want to learn how to play Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. And the teacher says, oh, that's great. It's a great rock song. Let's do it. So he hands the student the sheet music and he says, here you go. Like, go home and practice. I've taught you basic scales. Here's all the notes on the page. Go home and learn it. Come back next week and we'll play together. So the student very dutifully goes home practices on his rusty Fender Stratocaster that's barely in tune, comes back a week later, and he says, all right, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's play a whole lot of love. And the pr- professor says, all right, let me hear it. And he proceeds to launch into dun, 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 And of course, the teacher cuts him off midway and just says, that's not a whole lot of love. That's not the tune. Like... And it was clearly obvious the moment that the, the student had played the song that that was not the song. That was not, he'd never actually heard Led Zeppelin play a whole lot of love. And so what does the teacher do? He turns on his stereo, he plugs in his iPod and he says, let me play you something. And he plays the first track off of Led Zeppelin 2 and out of the speakers you hear Jimmy Page's raging Gibson SG playing. That's the spirit of the song, right? So what was the difference between those two things? Was one wrong and one right? Not so much, not necessarily, but the student only accounted for the technicality of the music. He only played the notes. The teacher knew the spirit of the song. He'd heard Jimmy Page. He'd seen the posters. He knew what Led Zeppelin was about. The teacher only knew the notes, or pardon me, the student only knew the notes on the page. And he knew, the teacher knew, that as soon as he heard the, the student's hyper right playing, the student had never actually heard Led Zeppelin play the song. So similarly, what we're going to come to see in this verse is that Jesus is talking about something that transcends the technicality of the law, just playing all the right notes. He's going to transcend that in order to reveal the purpose of the law, that is, what the, what the song is really about. He's going to, metaphorically, if you want to go there, he's going to teach us how to play a whole lot of love, pun intended. So he's, he's going to teach us this, to, this, uh, this teaching that transcends the technicality to show us the purpose. The Sermon on the Mount is best thought of not as a, another Ten Commandments, but as a description of character. It's best not to, to uh, just, it's not Jesus saying, live like this, play all the right notes, but it's rather Jesus saying, because you're a Christian, if you already know God, this is what your life should look like. So not, if you want to become a Christian, do this, but rather, if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, this is, what, this is what your life should look like. The Spirit of God should occupy your life in such a way that you are meek, that you are poor in spirit, that you are pure in heart. So I'd like to suggest this morning that the text basically asks us one very simple question, and then it gives us one very profound answer. The question is this, what makes for a happy life? What makes for a happy life? And I'd like to propose that the text's answer is seeing God seeing God. 
there are quite literally only 11 words that I have been tasked with teaching about this morning. So I think that we should look at them very closely. Um, you can even think of this as a word study if that's helpful to you. Um, so here's the four sub-questions that I'd like to organize our thoughts around this morning. First question is, what makes for a happy life? And then we're going to talk just briefly about four other questions, and they are these. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to see God? And what does all of this mean for us? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to see God? And what does all of this mean for us? Ready? All right, let's do this. So what does it mean to be blessed? Um, The word in the Greek that Jesus uses here um, is makarios, which we translate as blessed. Um, But another gloss, if you look in a Greek lexicon, another uh, translation of that word is the word happy. Happy. Jesus is saying happy are the pure in heart. Congratulations to the pure in heart. For these are the people who have found the key to true happiness. What Jesus tells us is that happiness is never an end in itself. It's only the byproduct of wanting something else more than happiness. And it stands to say uh, that this particular view of happiness is very different from our culture's understanding of happiness, isn't it? In our culture, we say that happiness is an end in and of itself. That's the thing that life is about. It doesn't matter what you do or who you are. We all want to have happy lives. But Jesus is saying something very different. The Bible says that true happiness is the result of desiring something other than happiness itself. C.S. Lewis is um, the man, and uh, he articulated this point so well um, in talking about friendship. You can kind of just think of this as a parallel example. Um, So C.S. Lewis is talking about friendship, and he writes this. He says, friendship must be about something. Friendship must be about something. That's why those people who simply want friends can never make any. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. In the same way that friendship can't be about itself, it's the same way with happiness. Happiness is the result of desiring something else greater than happiness. The reason that we're so often unhappy is is that we idolize it. Jesus says that a happy life is one that's oriented around a desire to have a pure heart. So ask yourself just very basically, if you know this, if you believe this, why aren't you more happy? Why am I not more happy? What should you seek in life? Should you seek happiness or purity of heart? If you seek happiness you'll get neither. If you seek purity of heart, the text tells us, you get both. So we idolize happiness. The normal and natural habit of our heart is to make exceptions to the rules and principles that we organize our lives by in order to be happy. I want to be pure in heart, but I want to be happy more, essentially, and I refuse to compromise. So whatever it may be that defines for us the state of happiness, whether that's a career or financial success, whether it's having a family that loves you, whether that's financial security, Um, popularity, human pleasure, human love, whatever the thing might be for you that is kind of the archetype of happiness. The moment that that takes a higher place in our lives than the pursuit of a pure heart, we find that that thing betrays us. That is, it doesn't provide the happiness that we want, and it leaves us empty. If I make having a great marriage my number one priority, I'll never have it. If I make career success my number one priority, I'll never have it. Jesus is telling us that happiness is the byproduct of desiring something else more than happiness. So what is that something else? It's purity of heart. Question number two, what does it mean to be pure in heart? So bear with me for a second. I'm going to speak very broadly and kind of abstractly. Broadly speaking, purity of heart means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect 
and that all of our lives should be oriented around a supreme desire to love and, and live for him. It means that we desire God, that we desire to know and love and serve him through all of our capacities, what we think, our emotions, our actions, our wills, all of those things should be organized around a desire to love God more. So that's a very broad way to speak it. Um, David articulates this sentiment incredibly well in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Really easy thing to do, right? Of course not. Of course not. As soon as anyone with even the slightest degree of self-awareness utters those words, and you hear those virtues, you shudder to think of the reality of your own heart, don't you? I know I do. Yes, there's part of us that desires goodness. We want to be generous people. We want to be kind. We want to be well-liked. We want to pursue beautiful and true things. We want to honor God with our living. Those things are real in us. But there's also another part of our hearts, isn't there? There's a part of us that's selfish. There's a proud part. There's violence. There's anger. There's mercilessness inside the human heart. Those things coexist. And scripture recognizes this war in us. It talks about two natures that are always fighting against each other in our hearts. Paul sums it up so well when he writes in Romans 7. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Sounds crazy, right? That's the human heart. That's us. There's a madness in our hearts. There's a war. There's a great conflict inside us between two opposing forces. In Jeremiah 17, we read that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Our hearts are deeply divided places. The line between good and evil, one thinker said, the line between good and evil runs through the center of every human heart. Let's think again about the Jews that Jesus was speaking to. Remember the audience. Remember the religiosity. The Jews were a people who were constantly aware of their own sinfulness. All of life was defined in terms of pure and impure foods, clean and unclean hygiene. The entire temple system that they interacted with was built on an exhaustive list of payments that had to atone for sin. The darkness of their disobedience of the law of God was literally tangibly evident to them in the smell of burning flesh for the offerings that were offered every day to atone for their sins. You think you have a guilty conscience? There's not a barbecue in your backyard to uh, atone for your sins. So if you need something to be thankful for next time you feel plagued by guilt, thank God that there's not an animal being roasted in, in your name in your backyard. That was life for the Jews, craziness. One of the pillars of Jewish, uh, Jewish religious community was the practice of the priest. Uh, the priest was a person who was chosen by God to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Um, on, pardon me, on behalf of the people to atone for their sin. Uh, the Levitical law was very explicit about certain sacrifices that had to be made for certain things that were done wrong, and that code was adhered to by the Jews. The community designated this person um, to make it their life's work to maintain external purity before God. And therefore, the people were always aware of their need to transact before God. There was something that had to be done because God was holy and high and lofty and pure and perfect, and people are sinful. There was something that always had to be done to bring them into right standing with God, to appease God's wrath. That's what life was like for them. I think this is, this is a really hard dynamic for us to grasp onto um, as modern people because we tend to not think of our lives in communal terms. We think very individualistically about our spiritual life. So let me try to explain it this way. Um, my wife Elizabeth and I went on a vacation this summer, <clears throat> and right before we left for vacation, our fridge broke. Total bummer. 
we weren't sure what happened, but you know, the ice melted, the fridge wouldn't keep temperature, it just totally skitzed out on us. Um, so we very sadly had to throw away all of our food, which was a total bummer. And um, we just decided we're just going to deal with this when we get back, you know, whatever. We'll get back from vacation. We'll take care of the problem. So we got back from our trip, and um, sure enough, the fridge was still had not magically resurrected itself as I was hoping. still needed to be fixed. And uh, <clears throat> me, I, I'm so not a handyman. If you know me, I'm not a handy person. Some of you are really gifted that way, and I'm totally impressed. It doesn't take much. You could, like, hammer a nail in front of me, and I'd be like, oh, man, how do you do that? It's incredible. So. We get back from the trip, and I'm just doing all of these goofy things to try to get it to work. I'm plugging it in and unplugging it. I'm Googling my heart out, being like, how do you fix a refrigerator? And you, you get really awkward web pages that don't really, aren't very helpful. So finally, what do I do? I'm aware. I'm like, I need a professional's help. There's no way this is going to get better. Do I buy a new fridge? Do I get it fixed? So I call a repair person. I was aware of my inability, you could say, to offer anything to my refrigerator that would bring it back into right standing with me. <clears throat> I tried resetting it, like I said, nothing worked. So I hired this repairman, I paid him a financial offering, and he came and swapped out the motherboard on the computer in the fridge, and voila, it started working again. So bear with me, be generous with my metaphor here. I realize it breaks down at places, but just be generous for a second. I could not have entered back into right relationship with my fridge without the help of a mediator, without the help of a professional, a repairman whom I, pre- whom I paid a great offering, to fix the refrigerator on my behalf. Without the repairman, I was helpless. There's no way I could have fixed it. So in the same way, the Jews knew that there was no way to transact with a high and holy God other than the priest, the priest who kept himself externally pure, who achieved on their behalf the purity that they needed to interact with God. But Jesus is moving far beyond external purity here. He's not just talking about behavior. He's talking about our hearts. Now remember what Jesus is and isn't saying. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He isn't saying, blessed are those who try really hard to be pure in heart, for they will see God. He's not saying, blessed are those who made the right offerings, for they will see God. Excuse me. He's not even saying, blessed are those who are kind of pure in heart, for they will kind of see God. He's saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In other words, blessed are those in whose hearts... I am building the kingdom of God. And because of my reign and rule in you as king, you have the fullness of my purity of heart and you will see God. That's what Jesus is saying. No more sacrifices, no more offerings, no more refrigerator repair fees, so to speak. Just my reign and rule and my purity of heart for you. Jesus was totally changing the game. Jesus was speaking as one who had full authority over the law of God. He spoke to say, your righteous acts, your keeping of the law, your sacrifices, your right behavior cannot save you. They can, never, they can never reconcile you back into the relationship that you need with God. All the blood of bulls and goats, cows, will never suffice. If we keep reading, we hear Jesus take the law of God, again, back to the nosebleed metaphor, he scales even further up the mountain. He says, perhaps this might be one of the loftiest places in all of scripture, like the commentator said. He elevates the law of God to this level to tell us that all of the right living in the world can't change the source of evil. That is, the problem is not the externality. The problem is the fact that in our hearts, evil comes out of us. There's a darkness in our hearts, the pride, the anger, the violence that's in us. That's where the evil comes from. Ten ten chapters later, if you turn over to Matthew 15, you'll hear Jesus saying, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false testimony, slander. It's a long list. The primary problem, again, is not our behavior, but the darkness of our hearts. In the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to show that the mark of a supernaturally changed heart is not one that's concerned only with outward moral performance, but an inwardly changed life. It's not concerned, it's not someone who just doesn't murder, but it's someone who doesn't think an angry thought. It's not just someone who doesn't commit adultery, it's someone who doesn't think lustfully. It's not just someone who loves their enemies, it's someone who loves their, or pardon me, it's not just someone who loves their friends, it's someone who loves their enemies. So this is purity of heart, what's it for? It's for seeing God. Our third question, what does it mean to see God? If you're like me, um, when I first looked at this passage, you think about purity of heart as this incredible lofty thing that Jesus is talking about, and surely incredible lofty things should achieve incredibly lofty rewards, right? But then you read seeing God. And at first pass, um, it doesn't strike me as the great, beautiful incentive that it is. And I'd be willing to guess that most of you reading the text are kind of in the same boat. You go, okay, seeing God. I'm on board, but I'm not particularly struck by that. So let me just present like a logical syllogism here. This isn't even an emotional plea. This is just kind of math. God's the most beautiful, glorious, powerful being in the universe, right? And Jesus says that there's a way for us to see him, to behold him, to be satisfied by him. And that's, that means that, that the relationship of those two things is the most significant thing that could possibly be. God's bringing, Jesus is bringing us into contact with God himself. But still, even after saying that, part of us says, so what? So what? And I think there's a, a really good potential cure for this. Uh, the 5th century theologian Augustine in uh, his famous confessions <clears throat> gives us this really wonderful thought experiment to help us think about what it is that we really want. How do you understand what your heart really wants? Why don't you find God beautiful? So imagine this with me. This is a very abstract thing to do, but just go there with me for a second. Here's what he says. Imagine God appeared to you and said, I'll make a deal with you if you wish. I'll give you anything and everything that you want. Pleasure, power, honor, wealth, freedom, even peace of mind and a good conscience. Nothing will be a sin, nothing will be forbidden, and nothing will ever be impossible for you. You will never be bored, and you will never die. That's God's proposal to you. On the condition that, he says, you shall never see my face. That's terrifying, isn't it? It's really terrifying. Our deepest possible longing which is for God himself, shudders in the face of that proposition. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him, until we see his face. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 1. The Bible says that even if you don't believe in God, that there's a void in your heart that only he can fill and that you can't escape your need for him to fill you as only he can. Seeing God's face is life itself. Do you desire that? Do you sense how all of life is understood rightly as being lived in God's presence in front of his face? Imagine how terrible it would be if the friends that you cared most about, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your boyfriend, your wife, imagine if those people suddenly refused to look you in the face. Imagine how terrible that would be. You would, you, relationship would cease. You could love that person as much as you'd like, but it doesn't matter. If someone won't look at you, there's no relationship. You can't love someone that won't look, at you, look you in the face. What an insult. It's an awful thing. And some of you have had to endure these kind of rejections. It's absolutely terrible. 
So if the faces of the people, human beings that we love, are that significant to us, how much more important is seeing the face of God? We long to see his face, but Paul says we see through a glass darkly. We have spiritual astigmatism. Our eyes don't work right. Our eyes, the eyes of our hearts are blurred. We long to see, but we can't see by ourselves. There's a famous story in scripture um, that some of you might be familiar with of someone asking God to see his face. Um, it's in Exodus 33 where we read about Moses asking God to see his face. So Moses has been appointed to lead the people of God um, out of the land of Sinai into exile, into the land of Canaan, and uh, God promises to go with them. He says, I'll be with you. I'll give you my presence. You won't be alone. I'll be there with you every step of the way. And Moses had never known any dwelling of God outside of the tabernacle, outside of the temple. And he says, well, what do you mean that you're going to go with us? What do you mean you're going to show me your face? Like, I need proof of this before I go. Show me your face. And this is God's response to his question. God says to Moses, this is Exodus 33, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see my face and live. And then the Lord said, There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand. And this is very interesting here. He says, You will see my back, but my my face must not be seen. Moses asked to see God's face, but the glory was so great, so terrifying, so overwhelming that it would have destroyed Moses. So in his mercy, God shielded Moses from seeing, his fo- from seeing his face. Moses was a sinful man, and his sinfulness would have, figuratively speaking, caused him to evaporate in God's presence. In the pure presence of God, no one can see God's face and live. Moses' story tells us that. This brings us to our last question. <clears throat> what does all this mean for us? How do you get the power to be pure in heart, to see God, to be happy, How does this happen? Let me just briefly summarize what I've talked about so far. We talked about how Jesus is telling us what a truly happy life is, and yet how our attempts at happiness are misdirected because we want other things besides happiness and before happiness. We've talked about what a pure heart is and the impossibility of achieving it. We've talked about the darkness in our own hearts and how that impedes us from having pure hearts before God. And we talked about what it means to see God's face, that seeing God's face is not just an abstract thing, but it's, it's the source of all life. To live outside of God's presence is death. So by now, you may be feeling like you are proverbially leaning over the edge of the cliff, peering into the pit of despair. Your weight is slowly shifting over. I hope you feel this way anyway. This is what I'm going for. This is what I'm going for. But I hope that in the next few minutes, you'll feel pulled back to safety. But you know, the rescue never feels quite as significant if you don't see where it is that you're about to fall. So... Let me close with just two stories. First is a personal anecdote, and then um, an infinitely more significant story. <clears throat> so about, about seven years ago, um, I went to Brooklyn for a weekend in August to visit a friend. Uh, we ate really good food and just kind of palled around the city together. Um, it was a, a, a hot, balmy, hazy August summer day. Um, you know what it's like. Same thing here in Philly. August hits, and it just gets kind of oppressive outside. Uh, It was Sunday. We decided to go worship somewhere together. We went to a larger church. I just remember feeling really irritable, hungry, tired, like you do when you've just been walking around the streets for hours. And, um, yeah, so we were like, let's let's go to worship. So I'm in no headspace by any means to consider the fact that I should be 
thinking about the great privilege that it is to get to come into God's presence with other Christians and worship, I am just totally self-consumed and mad that I'm not well drank, not well drank and well fed going into uh, that time. So anyway, an usher seats us um, in a row that is immediately in front of a woman who I observe has very significant mental and physical disabilities. Um, she can't speak clearly. She, um, she's bound to a wheelchair. Uh, her muscles spasm awkwardly. Um, she, she grunts and moans occasionally just to, to ask for her caregiver for help. And uh, the only thing I'm really thinking about is just how inconvenient, how, how much of a pain it's going to have to be to sit in front of this woman the next year, or for the next 90 minutes. He's probably going to be kicking the back of my seat and just kind of being obnoxious. Again, really wonderful heart to bring into worship. Um, <clears throat> so there I am, self-absorbed, concerned with my own happiness ahead of everything else, and uh, worship starts. Um, the music starts playing, the congregation stands, we lift our voices together, and as soon as I open my mouth to sing, before I could even get the, the word out, I, I just, I stopped in my tracks, because I hear the woman behind me cry out. She couldn't sing, she, could, she couldn't articulate the words we were singing, she couldn't hold the pitch that the congregation was singing, but she sang. She cried out from the depths of her heart and offered to God a beautiful offering, a heart, a pure heart that was seeing God's face in that moment. And I, with my capable voice and my capable ability to at least hold a pitch, could not move. I was floored. I was, I, I was ashamed partially because I was just aware of how small my heart was in that moment how this woman was seeing the face of God, that she was bringing a pure heart to worship, and it just crushed me because I was aware of how small my heart was. So I don't remember anything else about that worship service, but I do remember the beautiful sound that came out of that woman's mouth. And I turned around to her after the worship service was over, and I said, thank you, just very simply, and I, and I left. So... The question is, how do you get a heart like that? How do you get a heart that comes before God purely and just delights in seeing him face to face? Not because you want something from him, but just because you find him beautiful. How do you get that heart? Where do you get the power for that changed heart? And I'd like to propose that it comes from the same gospel that we've been looking at today. If you turn just to Matthew 27, 22 chapters later, you see the same Jesus who here is speaking the Beatitudes to us on a mountainside in Judea. You see him now on a different hillside. This time he's outside of Jerusalem on a cross, and he's dying as an innocent man in the place of his enemies, in the place of you and me. Jesus, the person in history, the one person who had a perfectly pure heart, was crucified, and he died for you and I. And do you know what he said in the moments before he died? Scripture says that he cried out in a loud voice and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? What was he crying out about? He was crying out because the Father turned his face away. Jesus, who had ever only known complete face-to-face -face intimacy with God, was shunned, he was excluded, he was drowned in the darkness so that you and I would always be able to live in the light of the Father's face. Jesus was blinded to the presence of God so that you and I can always see the Father. And when your heart really glimpses that, 
we were talking earlier about the deepest seed of all your emotions and your affections and your longings. When that part of you sees Jesus doing for that, sees Jesus doing that for you, rather, that will change you. That will change you. Friends, remember that the person telling us this high and lofty truth here in the Beatitudes is the same person who went to the cross and died so that this teaching could be true of us. Purity of heart is not just a virtue. It's not just a a high and lofty truth. It's not an abstraction. It's a person. And it's a person who died so that his purity of heart could be your purity of heart. So do you want that? Do you desire that? Is there part of you that, as I talk about this, says, I want, my own, I want my own heart to be like that. I know I do. Ask the Lord for it. I implore you. It's yours to have because of what Jesus has done for you. So, just to close, <clears throat> if you know Jesus this morning and you feel far from the truth that I've just talked about, I, I, would, I would encourage you to not despair. If you're very aware of the darkness in your own heart right now as we're looking at God's word, don't despair. Bring your heart to God. He knows you. He knows your heart. He loves you. Ask him to cultivate a pure heart in you. He longs to give this to you. That's our God. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, I invite you to his mercy because he only saves sinners. I invite you to his welcome of you as you are. I invite you to see the beauty of Jesus that is Jesus himself giving his life for you, overcoming sin and death, so that his purity of heart can become your purity of heart. That's the promise of scripture. And I can't think of any way or any better way, any uh, better last word or summary of what we've just been talking about this morning than what John writes in 1 John chapter 3. This is just so wonderfully connects um, and reaffirms our faith and our ultimate hope. John writes this. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. That's good news. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. May it be true in us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word and for your great love for us. Would you now work in our hearts by your spirit to draw us closer to Jesus, who is our purity, who is our hope, who is the God whose face we long to see. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.